We need so much reading this evening as refresh our memories with a certain number of verses. Revelation chapter 1, verse 2. John, who bear witness of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ, even of all things that he saw. And then just compare that with the first verse, the revelation or unveiling of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, that is the Lord Jesus, to show unto his servants, even the things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. Verse 9. I, John, your brother, am partaker with you in the tribulation and kingdom and patience which are in Jesus, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Well, now, that's just a few verses to remind us of this phrase, the testimony of Jesus. And then verse 12. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Verse 20. And the mystery of the seven stars, which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are seven churches. Then, next, shall we just look at some of these verses about overcoming. Chapter 2, verse 7. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. To him that overcometh, to him will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Verse 11. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. He that overcometh, shall not be hurt of the second death. Verse 17. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. To him that overcometh, to him will I give of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone, and upon the stone a new name written, which no one knoweth but he that receiveth it. This white stone was normally the stone given to a victor in the Greek games. Then in verse um, 26, And he that overcometh, and he that keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to shivers, as I also have received of my father, and I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Chapter 3, verse 5. He that overcometh shall be thus arrayed in white garments. And I will in no wise blot his name out of the book of life. And I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, 
Let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Verse 12. He that overcometh, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out thence no more. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and mine own new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. And then in verse 21, <coughs> He that overcometh, I will give to him to sit down with me in my throne as I also overcame, and sat down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. And lastly, in chapter 21, <coughs> verse 5, And he that sitteth on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he saith, Right, for these words are faithful and true. And he said unto me, They are come to pass, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Well, now that's to do with salvation, isn't it? And uh, life in Christ. And then, here, here comes the next part. He that overcometh shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Well, now there's something very wonderful, and we won't be able to look into all that as fully as we would like to, but it's all very, very wonderful. Now, shall we sing a very well-known hymn before we... Well, now... We, this evening, we turn again to our question, what is overcoming? Remember last week we um, talked about the testimony of Jesus and the fact that this book, this book of Revelation, has a lot to do with the testimony of Jesus. And that that testimony of Jesus, in turn, is represented by the golden lampstand that we find in the first chapters of Revelation and by inference in the last two chapters of Revelation and we find it in the middle of Revelation in chapter 11. And the golden lampstands have something, in turn, to do with the churches. Whilst they are not the churches, yet somehow or other they are, um, the churches have a lot to do. They're represented, if you like, again by the golden lampstand. And overcoming and finally being in the city and inheriting everything, if you like, putting it another way as we find it in Revelation 19, being part of the bride of Christ, uh, has something to do with the churches. So that is the way that we have come so far. 
Now, what is overcoming? It is quite clear that overcoming is directly and essentially related to the testimony of Jesus. In other words, if we really read the book of Revelation uh, carefully, we find that this overcoming is somehow or other related to the way we hold the testimony of Jesus. Or if you like to put it another way, it is something to do with the golden lampstand. Are we, in fact, holding the testimony of Jesus at all? Have we lost the testimony of Jesus? Has the golden lampstand been removed out of its place? And if we are holding the testimony of Jesus, how are we holding it? How are we holding it? Are we holding it with a pure conscience, with a, in a pure spirit? Or again, we may ask ourselves, is there anything which is a contradiction to our holding of the testimony of Jesus, a contradiction to this golden lampstand? Now, um, we find this all the way through, these two chapters, Revelation 2 and 3. There is a thing called Nicolaitanism. And the Lord says, this thing I hate. He uses the strongest word possible. This thing I hate. Nicolaitanism, of course, was, um, most of us, I think, would probably find it quite interesting. It was really came in really when the larger number of believers became Gentiles, were Gentile believers, Christians with Gentile backgrounds instead of Christians with Jewish backgrounds. Nicolaitanism was a form of Greek philosophy and its idea was that we should be more sophisticated, we should uh, allow the customs and way of life and the whole generally refined and sophisticated form of Hellenism to have a lot uh, to uh, to, to, to say to us and that we want to throw it out in as, as the rather more narrow-minded orthodox uh, folk with Jewish backgrounds would have done. They looked upon Hellenism as a, as a form of well, almost the devil uh, himself. And then, of course, inbred into Jewish thought has always been democracy. Uh, 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 you could see that in the Old Testament, even with the king. A poor peasant could come into the presence of, of King David. Or to, a woman, two women having an argument over children, could go walk straight into the presence of King Solomon and say, you settle this matter. And he didn't get angry about it. He said, right, I'll settle it. Give me a sword. Cut the, the child in two and give you half each. Anyone could go into the presence. There's no such thing as the Gentile idea of monarchy, which is that you're a kind of in slavish fear uh, of the king and have got to find all ways and means of being introduced. And this is why the Lord Jesus put it very, very interestingly once when he said in Mark, you remember, he said, you know, the Gentiles love to lord it over one another. He put it like that. In other words, on the whole, Jews don't. And of course, this is true. 
inbred kind of sense of democracy, of, if you like, I don't like the word democracy, but of equality. Now, Nicolaitanism was a form of priesthood. That's all. Instead of being like before, that synagogue pattern where everyone was free to minister, everyone could read the word of God, any single brother could get up and go to the, to the law if he was overage uh, and was a Jew and would be given the law and could open it up and read it. That was his right. Every single uh, brother, man, uh, had this right. Uh, Nicolaitanism said, oh, no, 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 no. That's reserved to the clergy. This was the kind of thing that happened in the Greek temples, where you had a difference between clergy or priesthood and laity, you see. And so Nicolaitanism is just that, that's all. It's a form of, 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 of sort of Gentile philosophy, Gentile And the Lord said, this thing I hate. But there's a lot more to it than just that, but there you are. There was a contradiction to the testimony of Jesus something in, in the churches, in at least two of the churches, there was this Nicolaitanism, which thing the Lord hated. And then again, there was a Jezebel. She is quite other than the testimony of Jesus. Has no part in it and nothing to do with it. Jezebel and all those who had anything to do with her in another place. And then there was the teaching of Balaam. That is, ministry for money. I minister, you pay me. Uh, teaching of Balaam. Uh, uh, which the Lord speaks of in, in another place. In other words, covetousness, professionalism. Again. And, of course, there was compromise. Thou art neither hot nor cold. This isn't pure gold. This isn't pure gold. Um, there's compromise here. You're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. Or, uh, oh, there may be many other things. Well, anyway, <clears throat> the question we ask is, is there anything that is a contradiction to the testimony of Jesus to this golden lampstand? The whole battle, the conflict so vividly described in this book of Revelation is all to do with the testimony and our holding of it. Now, the overcomers are those whose lives are consistent with the golden lampstand in every way. That is, as far as they know, as far as light has been given to them, they are walking not in any contradiction, but are walking in consistently with holding the testimony of Jesus. Now, don't be afraid of that. For you see, the whole point of these letters is that the Lord commends the weakest thing he can find so long as it's consistent with this testimony. The Lord knows very well that some of these dear believers were very young, they were very weak, they'd been torn out of, in one place, where the very throne of Satan is. Think of that. Torn out of that. Well, now the Lord just simply says, now don't worry about that. You're all right. You're, you're going to overcome. Providing that you walk in obedience to this testimony which you are holding. This testimony of the Lord Jesus. Well, now, I think we have to say that there are certain characteristics about the golden lampstand which 
um, immediately um, come to our mind. As soon as we start to look into the Word of God, there are about four or five characteristics of this lampstand which sum up, really, the testimony of Jesus in one way, at least give us some of the bones of it, if you like, uh, if nothing else. Now, what is, what is it? Well, now, first of all, it is all of pure gold. Well, now, that's, I'm afraid, quite well known to a number of you. Let's just look at um, the uh, scriptures. Exodus 25. Exodus 25. Exodus 25 and um, verse 31. Thou shalt make a lampstand of pure gold. Verse 36. The whole of it, one beaten work of pure gold. Verse 39. Of a talent of pure gold shall it be made with all its vessels. Then if you turn to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 12, we read these words. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. In Havington I saw seven golden lampstands. And then again, Revelation 21 and verse 18. Revelation 21 verse 18. The city, last part of the verse, the city was pure gold, like unto pure glass. And verse 21, last part, the street of the city was pure gold, as it were, transparent glass. And then back to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 18, I counsel thee to buy of me gold refined in the fire. Now the first thing about this lampstand was that it was pure gold. Absolutely pure gold. Now we are told in Revelation 25 and verse 40, see that you make it according to the pattern that was shown you in the mount. Exactly. Pure gold. Now what does that speak of? Well, I think most of you know straight away. It is a symbol or a picture, a type if you like, of the life, and nature and character of Jesus Christ. So this testimony of Jesus, which we hold, is something to do with his life and his character and his nature. Now let's have a look at a few more scriptures. And that alone, in other words, the church, or whatever you like, this uh, uh, lampstand, is made out of what Jesus Christ is alone. It's not a mixture of an old man with a new man. It's not a mixture of an old creation with a new creation. It's not a mixture of an old nature with a new nature. It is purely Christ. Christ in us. Now, that doesn't... Let's, well, let's look at a few scriptures. First of all, um, Hebrews... Chapter 3, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14. For we are become partakers of Christ. Partakers of Christ. Participants in Christ. Or 
The word is koinonia, the Greek New Testament Greek word for fellowship. We are sharers of Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Partakers of Christ, participants in Christ, partners in Christ, sharers of Christ. We have become those who have received Christ. So that we are in him and he is in us. Now if you turn over to 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 4, we have it here. Whereby he hath granted unto us his precious and exceedingly great promises, that through these ye may become partakers of the divine nature. Ye might become partakers of the divine nature. Now, if you have been a partaker of a meal this evening, it's in you. You have partaken of a meal. All right? That food on the table you partook of and it has now gone into you and is busily becoming flesh and blood. It is becoming you. In just the same way we have become partakers of Christ. We have become, through the exceeding great promises of God, partakers of the divine nature. This pure gold is in us by the grace of God. If there is anything of Christ in us, that is the gold. Now, there are some other scriptures. There's Colossians 1, verse 27. And I'll always link this with the city. Christ, to make known to you what is the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The city having the glory of God. Christ in us, pure gold. Again, Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, the very last phrase, but Christ is all and in all, everything and in everyone. Now think of that, you can't escape it. Everything and in everyone, this new man. Christ is everything and in everyone. All those born of God, he is everything and in everyone, all and in all. Now, that's what the, that lampstand meant. See that it's made of pure gold. No other material. No other metal, however precious. Nothing else. Just gold and pure gold. No, nothing base. No mixture. No other alloy. Just simply and only pure gold alone. Now, the testimony of Jesus is simply and only that. It means that somehow this new man, this, this bride, is being taken out of his side. It's his flesh and his bone. This woman is being created, created out of what he is. It's altogether a new creation out of the life and nature and character of Christ. Now, that's the whole battle you and I are in. And if you look through the book of Revelation, that's what finally it comes back to. It comes back to your personal life and walk. My personal life and walk. And whether, having begun to be a partaker of Christ, I am going on being a partaker with Christ. For that's what Hebrews 3.14 says. If we go on to the end, we must continue to partake if we're going to be inheritors. Now, I'm not talking about losing your salvation, but I am talking about losing your inheritance. You can be saved, but so is by fire. That means you get in by the skin of your teeth. 
And even of those, it says, blessed are they that are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The blessing attached to even that, getting in by the skin of your teeth. I should think so too. But we don't want to get in by the skin of our teeth. We want there to be so much gold in us, pure gold, transparent gold, that we've inherited something. We are, we are inheritors. We are, not, we are not only just heirs of God and joint heirs, because we've come into it, finally and forever. And that's what it's all about. Now, this gold, this gold which the lampstand speaks of, is worked in us via circumstances, relationships, situations in everyday life and routine. Now, don't get away from that. It's not in a Bible college. It's not in a theological seminary. It's not in some sort of um, monastic order. It's in everyday life and routine that this gold is produced and worked in us. God takes hold of us and in his sovereign choice and election, he gives us certain circumstances or permits certain circumstances through our own foolishness sometimes. Circumstances, situations, relationships that we find ourselves within. And God says, now those are the things I'm going to use to work this gold in you. Sometimes it's the negative. He uses circumstances to bring us to the end of ourselves where we cry out, Oh God, if you don't change my circumstances now, I'll not be a Christian another moment longer. Well, what's the Lord doing? You say, Oh dear, 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 you should go off to some meeting and get a blessing. You shouldn't be in a state like that. Just you wait. You may escape the very thing that God is trying to do. What God is trying to do is this. He's trying to get you to see negatively there's no gold in you. It's as simple as, there isn't any gold. You, you are looking for the resources in yourself. You think, now then, I'm a Christian. I've got to behave properly here. I've got to screw up everything I've got and face this situation, however dark it is. And the more you do it, the more impossible it becomes. So that finally, your whole Christian life collapses around your ears. And then you think, oh dear, what's gone wrong? The Bible says this. The New Testament says this. I heard this. We sang this. But my experience is this. Quite opposite what God is doing. God is using your circumstances, your, the relationships you find yourself in, husband or wife or parents or children or boss or someone else. Relationships. Life is filled with relationships, even if we don't like them. Everyone's got relationships, somewhere or other, somehow or other. And uh, it's through these things that God works negatively to bring us to a complete end of ourselves, where it is impossible to take another step forward at all. And then positively to bring us to the place where we discover that the gold is there. I counsel thee to buy of me gold refined in the fire. It's there. The price is experienced. You prepare for the deep cost of experience and the gold is yours. And then you come out of that situation with something you couldn't have had any other way. You've discovered that the Lord is in you. And he can be. I can do all things through Christ or as it can be literally translated, in Christ who strengthens me. Well, now there you are. That's where the gold is. Now, you may say to me, ah, oh, just wait, just wait, just wait. 
I'm not at all sure that my home is really as God would have it, you know. I think I married the wrong, wrong woman. <laughs> well, that's too bad. They're your circumstances, and that's your relationships, and that's just where God is going to bring gold. You see, the God says in one place, or the Apostle Paul puts it, by the Spirit of God, he says, don't try and get out of your situation. If you're born in this, stay there, unless God deliberately and definitely shows you that you ought to. All of us are trying to get out because, you see, we, we're all incurably proud. We say this is the kind of talk we have, the kind of psychology we have. We say, now, if my circumstances were different, I would be a very different person. Why, I would be one of those lovely Christians with a smile from ear to ear. I would be holiness personified. If it wasn't for the, my relationships, if it wasn't for the, for the situation I'm found, that's a lie. A lie, an absolute lie. The fact is this. That if you can't be holy in the situation you're in now, you'll never be holy in any other way. It's only a facade. Let you out and you can look all pretty and godly and decent and upright, but you're not at all. It's just like clothes come off at night. <laughs> as simple as that. Well, now, there's a lot for us to learn in that. We become ever-increasing partakers of Christ, in and through our personal life and walk. In our home life. In our business life. And in church life. Now, get this quite clear. Where do we buy the gold? Oh, in the prayer meeting. No. Oh, in the Bible study, because that's where we hear these things and we're challenged. No. Well, at the Lord's table. You may, of course, buy gold in those places. But it's often at the kitchen sink that gold is bought. It's often in your bedroom alone with yourself that gold, refined by that, is bought. It's often in that office which is so difficult and the whole atmosphere is against you and it seems as if all hell's in charge. That's where you and I buy gold. And the Lord is very faithful in this matter. He allows us to go into all these things. So you see, sometimes people got the idea still right deep down within this between what we call secular and spiritual, secular and religious, you see. Now, the religious side is when we meet together like this. Now, that's when we're the church. When we're meeting like this, we're the church. And that's, of course, the thing that really matters. The only place you can ever get gold is when you're sitting like this. See. Then when we step out the door and go back to our homes, that's quite different. Or when we go to work tomorrow morning, that's different. But now just take the Ephesian letter. You have that tremendous revelation of God's purpose from eternity to eternity. A revelation such as you will not find anywhere else in the whole Bible. And then, what does the Apostle do? He brings it all down to personal things, to anger, malice, jealousy, rivalry, all these things, personal things. He says, if you stole, don't you steal anymore. And if you, uh, if you get angry, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Be angry and sin not. And all kinds of personal things. If you were immoral, don't you be immoral again. If you were this, don't do that anymore. Right? And then, next thing, we find ourselves in the home. Well, now, this is a far cry from everything being summed up in Christ, in heaven or on earth, and things under the earth. 
in whom we also are going to be made a heritage, chosen in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be conformed to his image. Why, it all seems very far. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, obey your husbands. And then parents and children and children and parents. Now, what's all this got to do with it? And then employers and employees and employees and employers. Now, what's it all got to do with it? It's got a lot to do with it. The Apostle Paul is putting in his way what John has put in another way. You've got to get gold. And the only way you and I can get gold is in the ordinary, everyday life and routine. We can never shut off and think we're out. We're out and over and done with it. Well, we just say one other thing about the church, church life, to get this thing absolutely clear. Let it really sink in. We are not just the church when we're meeting together. We are the church. How can you unchurch yourself? <laughs> you can't do it. The church is the body of Christ. You are either a member of the body of Christ or you're not. If you're a member of the body of Christ, you can never dismember yourself. You are in the body. So then when are you not the church? This idea, I'm going to church. I'm going to church. Of course, you won't find that phrase anywhere in the whole Bible because it, it, it infers that you're not the church at home, but you're going to the church. And when you come through the door, you're the church. Of course, it's all absolutely erroneous. You are always the church. So in, when you're alone tonight in your bedroom, <laughs> you can't unchurch yourself. You are the church. If you want to put it one way, you are part of it. You can't get away from it. You may not want to be anymore, but you are there. You're still the church when you're alone. And when you're at home, and there's a row in the home, you two, husband and wife, you're, you're the church. The church is having a row there. Oh, a little ding-dong battle with each other. As simple as that. And when you go to work, what are you? It's still the church. Now, of course, we're not speaking against the individual, because this is just what we're getting at. You are a member of the church of God. And you cannot be anything other or less. So you and I, we've got to get this gold in this time. Now, overcoming means that there is more and more of this pure gold in us. That's all. Let me put it another way. Christ is increasing in us and self is decreasing. More and more of the gold. So there you are in that home and you have a row at home and all oh dear things are black and dark and I don't know, everything's on top of you and then you, you, you say sorry and humble yourself and there's a little more gold there. And in the office you did something dishonest and you put it right and there's a little more gold there. And there's something in your life that's wrong personally, only God knows it and you put it right a little more gold there. You are overcoming. You are overcoming. Every time you obey what God shows you, you are overcoming. 
So don't get great glorified ideas of overcoming that all the trumpets blow, and then there's a tremendous sort of sallying forth on horses, and uh, you overcome, and everything flattens down before you. You know those kind of epic films? <laughs> or pan vision in glorious technicolour. Uh, I mean, the fact of the matter is that every time, as a dear sister said to me the other day, she said, you know, my husband said to me, you never put a butter knife out. And I thought to myself, <laughs> And then he said to me, there were crumbs in the butter. And then a few days later, he said, oh, the butter knife's not out again. He said, the trouble with you is you can't be told anything. And she was champing the bits in the kitchen, thinking, can't be told anything, when suddenly she realised, well, I suppose I can't. Why not put the butter knife out? So she went and put the butter knife out, and she felt such a peace and a joy <laughs> come into her heart. You can't believe she felt that like doing it. Well, as the old salvationists used to call it, she nearly had a glory fit. <laughs> That's how they used to put it. Now, why should a little thing over a butter knife? But you know, the whole of life is not the big things, it's the small things. Little tiny things like that. And you know, it's incredible how our pride's bound up with little things like that. Oh, we bristle, we bristle. In the office, at home, in church life, just bristle the moment anyone says anything. And we lose all our peace and joy, and then we say, oh, they're a miserable lot. Such a miserable... The meetings are so heavy. But in actual fact, it's just ourselves. We get through and fl we're floods, a flood of life and joy comes to us. It's gold. And that's the way gold comes, in tiny little ways like that. There's more of gold to contribute to the city. In other words, what overcoming is, is simply this. There's more of Christ in you, and therefore there's a bit more material for the city. The city is being produced out of it. So all those little things about butter knives and other little strange things that sort of so bar tie us up hand and foot, they've all got something to do with it, strangely enough. Why? Because, you see, this is the sphere of our education. Well, now there's another feature about this golden lampstand. If you turn back to Revelation, chapter 25, and uh, verse... Uh, sorry, Exodus chapter 25 and verse 31. And here it is. Thou shalt make a lampstand of pure gold. Of beaten work shall the lampstand be made. And then again in uh, verse 36. Their knops and their branches shall be of one piece with it. The whole of it, one beaten work of pure Gold. Now, this Hebrew word, beaten, you will see in your margin, uh, in the standard version, is put turned work, and in the revised standard version is translated hammered work. Hammered work. Now, any of you who've been to the East and seen a brassmith or a coppersmith, you know exactly what they're talking. That kind of work where something's being turned and it's hammered and hammered and hammered by three or four um, brassmiths. They're hammering it as it's being someone standing there turning it, and they're hammering <coughs> Pretty big blows the whole time. The actual Hebrew means beaten outwork, in the sense that there's a shapeless lump, 
of gold, and now you start to heat it and beat it and beat it and beat it and turn it and turn it as it's beaten, till it's beaten out. And the point is that the six branches you clearly see are to be beaten out of this one piece. They're not to be added to it and then soldered, but they're to be beaten out of it. And all its um, uh, decorations, its base, is all to come out of the one piece except for the lamps. The whole thing is to be one piece. Now, it is of beaten work. Numbers chapter 8 and verse 4. Numbers chapter 8 and verse 4. And this was the work of the lampstand, beaten work of gold, or hammered work of gold, unto the base thereof, and unto the flowers thereof. It was beaten work, according unto the pattern which the Lord had showed Moses, so he made the lamp stand. Now, what does this beaten work represent or symbolize? It is another aspect of the testimony of Jesus. And here it is. It speaks of discipline. Discipline. In one word, discipline. Or chastening. Or it speaks, if you like, of the school of Christ. Of travail. Now, this word discipline, you need not be so afraid of it. It is the word, of course, we get the word discipline from disciple. A disciple is someone who is disciplined by his master. That is, he accepts a certain discipline, a certain way of life, certain standards, certain principles. He becomes a disciple. Now, let's take our Bible and just see if we can find anything about that. In Matthew, and chapter 28, and verse 19. Go ye therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Make disciples of all nations. Look at John, chapter 8. John, chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus therefore said to those Jews that had believed him, If ye abide in my word, then are ye truly my disciples. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. John 8, verse 31 and 32. Here is discipline. Listen. If ye abide in my word, that's discipline, ye shall be my disciples. You can't just be disciples any old how. Oh, I think I'll do this. Oh, I think I'll do that. No, you abide within the word of God. And you will become a disciple. And the truth, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. A disciplined life is a truly free life. A truly free life. That's why we sang that hymn. Let my ordered life confess the beauty of life. 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. For God gave us not a spirit of fearfulness, but of power and love and discipline. A spirit of power and love and discipline, or self-control. And then again, be not ashamed, therefore, of the testimony of our Lord. There it is nor of me his prisoner, but suffer hardship with the gospel. 
according to the power of God. Chapter 2, verse 3. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier on service entangleth himself in the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enrolled him as a soldier. Discipline. Then turn to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, verse 4. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin, and ye have forgotten the exhortation which reasoneth with you as with sons. My son, regard not lightly the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art reproved of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. It is for chastening that ye endure. God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father chasteneth not? Well, but if ye are without chastening, whereof all have been made partakers, then are ye illegitimate, and not sons. Furthermore, we had the fathers of our flesh to chasten us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the father of spirits, and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us, as seemed good to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. All chastening seemeth for the present to be not joyous, but grievous. Yet afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit unto them that have been exercised thereby, even the fruit of righteousness. Now, this discipline is, well, shall we put it this way? The Lord exercises this discipline over us in the home, at work, and through the church. It is quite as simple as that. It is pure gold beaten out. So now, the first thing is to be prepared to buy the gold which is refined in fire, to obtain more and more of Christ through deep experience. The second is to be prepared for the discipline that will beat it out into shape. Now, some of us have an experience, but we're not prepared for the discipline. We want to have the experience and hold it to ourselves, be Lord of our own experience, rather than allow that experience in the home to be beaten out into shape. Or at work. Now, your boss is God's appointment. Or your employees are God's appointment. Your home is God's appointment. And the brothers and sisters you find, since you live here, in this area, are God's appointment for you and me. Now, this discipline is exercised through them. No, I don't mean by that that they're the ones that wield the big stick, although often that is the case. They don't mean to, but they do. But God exercises that discipline in the home, at work, and through the church. All the time, we are finding just that overcoming is submitting to the discipline of God. That's all. So the moment I say, no more of it, I'm not having any more, we cease to be an overcomer. <coughs> cease to be an overcomer. Because the gold may be there, but it's not beaten work. It's shapeless. It's just gold in its original state. It's one talent of gold. 
but he's not being beaten into the shape that God wants it. So overcoming is not just a question of all in the church, we have the discipline of one another, we have the discipline of all kinds of responsibilities and so on, but it is in the home, whether we're responsible in our home, whether we're responsible at work, and whether we're prepared to submit to the discipline of a home, and whether we're prepared to submit to the discipline of work. Now, we live in days where there is no such thing as discipline. So everyone is a law to themselves. But God says, no, this cannot be. This is as much the sphere in which I'm schooling you and educating you, as when you meet together for a time of praise and worship. So do let us get that clear. If you look at 1 John, chapter 2, 1 John, chapter 2, and verse 13, I write unto you, fathers, because ye know him who is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the evil one. Uh, then, uh, verse 14, I have written unto you fathers, because ye know him who is from the beginning. I have written unto you young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the evil one. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the vain glory of life is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Now, to do the will of God requires discipline. Whether it's in the home, husbands loving wives, wives obeying husbands, children honoring parents, parents not provoking their children, but caring for them. Or whether it's at work, employer and employee, and employees and employer. Do you see? We do the will of God. And as we do the will of God, so we overcome. The word of God abideth in us. Well, there's a lot more that we could say. There is just one of the things I would like to say mention in this, in this matter of beaten work, I think really we could take a, a phrase that's used to the Lord Jesus, he learned obedience through the things he suffered. Now, don't just use that word suffer as only pain in the sense of inflicting injury, but think of it also as discipline. The sheer discipline of being a cop. for some 17 years of his life, the discipline of a public ministry, the discipline of sacrificial service, the discipline of his father's will, not my will, but thine. He learned obedience to the things he suffered. Now, there is a very beautiful phrase in Psalm 90 and uh, verse 17 which in the authorized version says this and may the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us it is exactly the same Hebrew word that is translated elsewhere as a name Noemi Noemi uh, uh, 
pleasantness or delightfulness. And it's the word in Psalm 27 where the psalmist says, to behold the beauty of the Lord. Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. Now, if you look at this lampstand, there are some verses which very few people ever refer to. In Exodus 25, verses 32, 33, 34, and 35, you will see that it was very beautiful work. It was all to do with these things that rather strange in our authorised version, knops and knops here and knops there and knops everywhere, and buds and almond blossoms and uh, uh, knops. Put in our uh, new revised standard version as knobs. <laughs> but when you look at it carefully, you will see it was very beautiful work. It was traced work. The hammered work was done. And then began that beautiful work of ornamentation. It was a thing of beauty. And you know, there is no such thing as an unbeautiful life uh, when it's truly under the discipline of God. For the discipline of God makes no one crabby and narrow and lifeless and hard and theoretical and icily correct. But the discipline of God releases all the beauty of the Lord our God. It just means that what there is of Christ in us is released out. The shape, the form. Now the Hebrew word not used in this connection but often used elsewhere for the beauty of holiness is a word that I think again is a Hebrew concept of symmetry. Beauty in Hebrew, in the Hebrew concept is symmetry. Form, shape. Which of course beauty is really. It's an ordered life. So often I think most of us are fighting of an ordered life or a disciplined life because we think, oh dear, not like that. Sort of become one of those pale, sallow-faced, <laughs> old Christians, lifeless, and all the rest. Of, oh, but it's not so at all. You think of every single life that suffered. You think of every single one that suffered under the hand of God that knows anything of the fellowship of his sufferings. You think of any life that's known something of chastening or something of discipline or becoming a true disciple and you have touched beauty. The artificial is the ugly thing. Well, now then, one other, another feature of this lampstand is that it's all one piece. Well, I think we all know that in Revelation, uh, in again Exodus 25, Verse 31, 36, we have it again and again, of one piece, it's to be a beaten work of one piece, that is one piece beaten out into this shape. It's the oneness of Christ. The oneness of Christ. That is, this oneness is not merely doctrine or theory, but it is Christ in us all. So overcoming is first of all an individual matter, but it is also essentially linked to the corporate. Therefore, John saw this very clearly. His first letter says again and again, he that falls out with his brothers and sisters falls out with God. He says it again and again. He says, he that loves his brother loves God. God abides in him. That's how we know, he says. Don't listen to all their talk. They can preach and preach. They can sing and sing. They can pray and pray. But if they've fallen out with their brothers and sisters, 
they're, uh, they're living in a lie. They're in the dark. Well, now that finds us all out, doesn't it? And I dare to say that most of our problems are here. If we are prepared to forgive those who are outside of Christ for all that's wrong, we find it very, very hard to forgive Christians. As soon as we see anything at all that doesn't match up to what we think ought to be, we begin to feel superior, or we begin to feel critical, or we begin to feel a strain in our uh, relationship. But what does the Word of God say? It says in Ephesians chapter 4, in those so well-known words in chapter 4 and verse 3, giving diligence to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Giving diligence. And before that, with all lowliness, forbearing one another in love, giving diligence. Now this matter requires diligence. It doesn't just evolve. It requires diligence. How painfully we learn that the closest of ties can be brought under a shadow if diligence is not given to keeping the unity of the Spirit. Now, overcoming is very much a matter of maintaining the unity of the Spirit. Now you see these seven churches. In every one of these churches there are problems. Now if the problems are not inside, they're outside. But every single one of these churches has problems. I think it's much better to have problems outside, like Smyrna and uh, Philadelphia. But if you haven't got problems outside, and they had big problems, in both cases the Lord says, I know those who call themselves Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. This is to both of them. They're, if you haven't got the problems outside, then they're inside. And some of the problems inside are simply tremendous. Now, what are we going to do? What are we going to do about these problems? Well, we can all say that we've put on the new man, wherein there is neither Greek nor Jew, Gentile nor Jew, barbarian, Syrian, bondman or free man, but Christ is everything and in everyone. Until it comes to the practical question of sharing responsibility together, of living together, of getting to know each other inside out. Now when that starts to happen, all the problems start to come. Now what shall we do? Suddenly we find here in one place a Jezebel and a lot of others connected with her. What are we going to do? Shall we opt out? Shall we... Uh, just, as it were, clear out? Shall we become a faction? Well, we wouldn't call it that. But shall we have a sort of an elite prayer meeting sort of thing to pray for them? Or, on the other hand, shall we become gullible and foolishly naive and sort of say, oh, no, we must be one with them all and thus become a partaker in their sins. What shall we do? This is overcoming. This is overcoming. 
how to stay in the corporate and go right through with a pure conscience and a pure spirit and a pure heart. That finds every one of us out, doesn't it? How is it possible to go through a situation such as that one with Jezebel in, or Nicolaitanism in, or Balaam, the teaching of Balaam, or the Laodicean situation, and not somehow or other become superior or proud or divisive? If these are really companies on the right foundation and the lampstand is still there, different when it's gone, of course, and whilst it's still there, what are we to do? Oh, it's so easy with the greatest experience in the world to have a troubled conscience. It's become compromised. We've started to talk. We've started to talk unwisely. We've started to get into sort of relationships which are, which are merely critical and negative and, or, or to get a heart that somehow becomes corrupted from its simplicity in Christ by what it sees, because the iniquity of many, because iniquity shall abound, the love of the many shall wax cold. How true that is. Or when we see things that are so impossible and problem after problem, we look at this family and we look at that family and we see this life and we see that life and we see this situation and we see that situation and we say, oh, it's so complex, it's so, so, so difficult, so insoluble. Then something says into us, it's no good. So where is there? No longer any faith. Where is the faith? When the Lord cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? The situations will be so complex, so difficult, so insoluble, that if we look at them, we have a corrupted heart, corrupted away from the simplicity of Christ. Well, we could say such a lot about this, but to maintain a pure spirit, a pure heart, a pure conscience, and the oneness of Christ is overcoming. And that's what the Lord, with his eyes of fire, looks for in those seven churches. Where are those? Now, you know what it says? Paul, in a single little nugget of wisdom, often overlooked in, I think, the second or third chapter of his first letter to Corinth after talking, thundering out the fact that Jesus Christ is one, and that there's only one name, and that is Jesus Christ. There must be no other names, whatever they are, however religious or good, only Jesus Christ. And he says, can Christ be divided? And then he goes on, in a little nugget of wisdom, he said this, having given, a, given us his own way through, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's my way through. Then he says, now listen, I'm afraid there have got to be factions amongst you that the approved of God might be made manifest. If there is anything wrong in our heart or our spirit, birds of a feather flock together. The raven goes for the raven and the dove for the dove. Or as they put it today, hawk with hawks and doves with doves. But whatever it is, it happens. The instinct within us is too strong. If there's more of Christ, out to Christ we go. If there's more of the flesh, to the flesh we go. That's what overcoming's all about. 
Now, if any of us have got mixed up with the flesh, and who hasn't? And who amongst us, all of us, has not sometime or another got involved in things which are quite wrong, of which we're quite ashamed? The thing to do is to learn. That is overcoming. Overcoming isn't that you never make a mistake, that you go through like a sort of perfect little saint from the start, <laughs> straight through to heaven like a, one of those rockets up to the moon, dead on. That's not overcoming. Overcoming is this, that in the school of Christ you fall and you learn. And because you learn the lesson, you don't do it again. You've got wisdom. Knowledge has been <coughs> translated into wisdom. Well, that's something else. Now, there is another feature, and with this we'll, uh, we'll have to close. It has pure olive oil within it. Exodus 27 and uh, verse 20. Exodus 27, verse 20. Thou shalt command the children of Israel that they bring unto thee pure olive oil, beaten for the light, to cause a lamp to burn continually. It has pure olive oil within it, the Holy Spirit, obviously, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of love, the Spirit of unity. Now, we know in John 16, verse 13 to 15, we are told that this Spirit of truth himself shall lead us into all truth, that he will glorify Christ, that he will take of the things of Christ and declare them to us, or reveal them to us, or unveil them to us. He will make them our own. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We also know that in Ephesians 5.18 we're told not to be drunk in, with wine, but to be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Now, overcoming has everything to do with a living experience of the Holy Spirit. Apart from an experience of the Holy Spirit, there can be no overcoming. It is the Holy Spirit this pure oil. What's the point of having pure gold? What's the point of having beaten work? What's the point of it all being beaten work out of one piece if there's no olive oil in the thing? The oil is there because the whole aim of that lampstand is to burn. So that light is given. That's the point of it. So the olive oil is absolutely essential. And of course, when you turn to Acts, well, you know as well as I do. You, you find everywhere that people are filled with the Holy Spirit. But has it ever occurred to you why they're filled with the Holy Spirit? Just look for a moment or two. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Acts 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, Spirit said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders, if we this day are examined concerning a good deed done to an impotent man, by what means this man is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even in him that this man stand before you whole. He is the stone which was set at naught of you, the builders which was made the head of the corn. That's good talk for someone who's going to be a candidate for martyrdom. Fancy! Peter! Peter, who denied his Lord three times, now stands up in front of the whole Sanhedrin, including the, the high priest, and says words like that, being filled with the Holy Spirit. He was overcoming. Why, he wasn't cringing in a corner. He wasn't hiding behind locked doors. He hadn't fled for his life. He stood up. And boldly and simply declared the gospel in front of those people. And they were smitten to the heart. And they gave him a good beating. And they said, you go out and don't you do any more like that. And they went straight out and started preaching again. 
And then the whole church could have been frightened to death. But in the same chapter, verse 31, when they had prayed, the place was shaken wherein they were gathered together and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spake the word of God with boldness. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and soul and not one of them said that all of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common and with great power gave the apostles their witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Now, why were they all filled with the Holy Spirit? So they could have little glory times. No, that was just the one side of it. Thank God, when we do have as the salvation, it's called it glory fits. I just read that the other day and it's thrilled me. Still, I'll talk about that another time. The fact is that um, uh, um, they were filled, the whole church was filled with the Holy Spirit in order to enable the selfish instinct in them all to be overcome. So that they had all things in common. And no one said that anything he had was his own. That's mine. I had responsibility. You're not going to have it. He shared it. Not stupidly, not naively, not gullibly, but truly as stewards of the things they had. You can't do that unless you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Oh, that old instinct inside for self-preservation and for one's own good. Hmm. <laughs> Want to let anyone else drive my car? Unless anyone else mess up my carpet. We don't want that lot tramping in our home. <laughs> I don't mind so-and-so and so-and-so, because they're good sorts. But you know the kind of thing that's deep down within us? Well, it's not only that they were of one heart and one soul, but it goes much further than that. It says great grace was upon them all, and with great power gave they their witness. But just look on quickly in chapter 6, verse 3. There was a lot of trouble. Look ye out therefore, brethren, from among you seven men of good report, full of the spirit and wisdom. Fancy choosing men to look after the finance, full of the spirit. They did that today, there wouldn't be nearly the trouble there is in churches, so-called. But we don't do that. We find a man who's good at bookkeeping or something else, and we say, now you look after it. But the apostle said, you just find men full of the spirit, and we'll all be all right. Don't have any more of this trouble. They'll be full of the spirit, and the Holy Spirit will show them what to do. Now, if you go on, you find all kinds of things. It becomes more and more thrilling. Verse 8, Stephen, full of grace and power. Verse 10, they were not able to withstand the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Verse 7 and 55, but he, being full of the Holy Spirit, looked steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. He was martyred. Why was he filled with the spirit? So that he could give that glorious testimony, as I said to a few this week. That testimony of Stephen was the first shot in the beginning of a departure from Judaism. Up to that point, it was just a Jewish sect. That's all. But when Stephen saw something which was altogether new, and he was the first one to put it into words, Paul was the one who took up Stephen's ministry. He took it on. Full of the Holy Spirit. As he died, he cried out, Father, forgive them, just like his Lord. How could he do it? Great rocks hurtling down, bruising and mangling him. Yet he could do it. He was full of the Holy Spirit. You turn on to Acts chapter 9, verse 17. And Ananias departed and entered into the house, and laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, who appeared unto thee in the way which thou camest, hath sent me that thou mayest receive thy sight, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Well, now, isn't that wonderful? Now, why was the Apostle Paul filled with the Holy Spirit as soon as he was converted? He'd only be converted a day, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? I'll tell you why. So that he could just have those glory fits? No, of course not. It was something else. Listen to this, verse 15. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way. This is Ananias. For he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. He couldn't have done it. Paul's ministry could never have been fulfilled by anyone who was half-filled with the Holy Spirit. He just couldn't have done it. It was only because he was continually filled with the Holy Spirit he was able to go right through and, and that great long catalogue in 2 Corinthians of the things that he suffered. Not to bring any glory to himself, but simply and only because there was pure olive oil in him. It was right inside. And you know, if the Hebrew word means for beaten work, beaten out work, it is perhaps a little significant that the Hebrew word for this um, olive oil, beaten, means beaten down. And I always think that when the Holy Spirit does any real work, he has to beat us down. There's no pride, there's no superiority, there's none of that. And so, well now, we've said all that. It's pure olive oil, there's no mixture. It's pure olive oil. That's the testimony of Jesus. Oh, how the enemy... If he can't stop pure gold, if he can't stop beaten work, if he can't stop it being of one piece, then he will stop it being pure olive oil. He'll come in with mixture. And oh, the tragedies that come this way. Is it possible, as I said last week, to be filled with the Spirit and to be divisive? How can you be filled with the Spirit of unity and be divisive, create factions, or parties. How is it possible? Is it possible to be filled with the Spirit and to be superior when his very work is to beat us down and to bring us low? Is it possible? Ask yourself. Is it possible to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to be immoral? Or to be drunken? Or to be a liar? Or to be a backbiter? Or partisan? Or covetous? Or irreverent? Is it possible to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to be those things? I say not. It is quite impossible. Well, now then, what is overcoming? Overcoming is that by the Spirit we are kept in our first love. And by the Spirit we're kept walking in the light. And by the Spirit, we are kept fighting the good fight of faith and laying hold on eternal life so that we're a living contribution all the time. By the Spirit, overcoming is by the Spirit, keeping the unity of the Spirit. And where? At home? At work? in church life. That's where it is. This pure olive oil is not reserved for meetings. This pure olive oil is something that's at home and at work and in church life. And do not forget 
that the whole point of the olive oil is that it should burn continually before the Lord. Burn continually before the Lord. In Numbers chapter 8 and verse 2 and 3, it tells us that it's for light. When thou lightest the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light in front. Now there's the candlestick, there's a replica of the candlestick. The only known picture we have of the candlestick is the one on Titus's triumphal arch in Rome, and this is a, an exact copy of it. And there, or out of all proportion, is a little oil lamp. Now there were seven of those little oil lamps. They went one fitted in into the cups. Seven of those. Now, in Numbers 8 it says this. When thou lightest the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light in front of the lampstand. And Aaron did so. He lighted the lamps thereof so as to give light in front of the lampstand as the Lord commanded Moses. The whole point of the, of the lampstand was to give light. That's the whole point. Those seven golden lampstands were lights in a dark place. There was all the heathendom and wickedness of those cities all around. But they were there to give light. What light? Let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Or the Lord Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Overcoming is not only a question of a living experience of the Holy Spirit, but it is a question of keeping burning, or if you like, keeping the fire ablaze. And it is not a flash-in-the-pan experience. You know these sudden blazes of glory we have, we go off to this conference or that, or we have a meeting here, and whoo, it's like a flash, like a, a lighted match to dry wood. We go up, We've gone up for a few days, we're up there, and we say, I'm different, I'm different, I'm changed. The Lord's done something, and oh my, it's just terrific, but there's another two weeks. <laughs> the blaze has gone. Well, we're all like that. And thank God for the touches we do have, which sometimes give us mountaintop experiences. We have valleys afterwards. But the whole point of this light is that it should burn continually. And only the Holy Spirit can do that. There can be no mixture in that kind of experience if we would know anything at all of that overcoming. Uh, then there's got to be a burning continually. May the Lord help us in these few thoughts um, on the question of overcoming. It all comes back to you and me personally. To him that overcometh, to him will I. Well, I. Well, that's what God says to you and to me. And then immediately he says, He, not those, but he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May the overcomer in us do his work. Shall we pray? Thy word says that whatsoever is begotten of God overcometh the world. And we pray, beloved Lord, that thou who art in us, what greater than he that is in the world, thou wilt overcome, Lord. Thou knowest all the things in our lives that are defeated, 
all the things that speak of darkness, that speak of that old creation, of an old nature. Lord, we are trusting Thee. By Thy light, through Thy word, by Thy finished work, through the gracious ministry of Thy Holy Spirit, to bring us to the place where we let Thee as the overcomer do Thy work in us. We want gold, pure gold, and more and more of it in every one of our lives. We want, Lord, that beaten work as well. We want to be beaten work of one piece, Lord. We want that pure olive oil. And we want that burning continually. Lord, we can't do it, but thou canst. And we pray together that although the darkness grows stronger around us, we may know the gracious ministry of the Holy Spirit, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. We ask it in his name. Amen.